Major Reisman. You are ordered by Allied command to select 12 general prisoners, convicted by courts martial and sentenced to be executed or serve lengthy prison terms for murder, rape, robbery, and other crimes of violence. And you will deliver them secretly behind enemy lines in France to undertake a mission of sabotage that could change the course of the war. The 12 men will be known as the Dirty Dozen. Lee Marvin as Major John Reisman. There's a little of Major Reisman in every man, says Marvin. Tough and unyielding, yet compassionate. I think it's the best role I've ever been asked to play. You've all volunteered for a mission which gives you just three ways to go. Either you can file up in training and be shipped back here for immediate execution of sentence, or you can file up in combat, in which case I will personally blow your brains out, or you can do as you're told, in which case you might just get by. Now you hold it right there. This war was not started for your private gratification, and you can be damn sure that this army isn't being run for your personal convenience either. Ernest Borgnine as General Warden. I'm tired of seeing generals portrayed as desk-bound pen pushers, says Borgnine. So I've played Warden as a rough professional soldier. Robert Ryan as Colonel Everett Dasher Breed. There were officers like Breed, says Ryan, who could never suffer the rules broken or even bend a little. Major Reisman's compliments, sir. Tell him while it's strong. You prefer to be captured or destroyed. Jimmy Brown as Napoleon Jefferson. Jefferson is any man fighting for recognition against the odds, says Brown. I think I understand him pretty well. The hell is... John Cassavetes as Victor Franco, says Cassavetes. Franco is a petty hoodlum forced to heroism by circumstances beyond his control. We go on that mission, we all get killed. That's what they want. That's what they want. Trini Lopez as Jimenez. He's crawling with hate. Charles Bronson as Vladislaw. The last guy in the world you'd expect to be a hero. <laughs> Telly Savalas as Archer Maggot. Maggot is a maniac, says Savalas. His religious fanaticism can never be moderated or quelled. It is a constant danger. <laughs> Clint Walker as Samson Posey. An Indian with war paint smeared on his soul. Train them. Excite them. Arm them. And turn them loose on the Nazi High Command. Hello again. It's time for another episode of Adam's Corner. And on this episode of Adam's Corner, I am fortunate to be joined by the New York Times best-selling author, Dwayne Epstein, who has uh, he he made a lot of waves? Oh, nearly a decade ago, I guess, with the uh, his Lee Marvin biography, Lee Marvin Point Blank. And uh, there you go, there you go. We, we've got a video version here. You'll you'll see it as it, as it were. And so uh, yes, and and it's a terrific book as well. I read it a while back. Uh, oh, really? Thank you. Yeah, it has been a while. Yeah, it's very well researched and <laughs> uh, easily readable for those who. Really, you know, reading's not uh, as fundamental as it used to be, but don't let that scare you. It's, if you're a movie fan, you you really need to take the time to uh, to read this Lee Marvin book. And his newest book is A Killing Generals, which I'll I've got a copy here. I can hold up. I think we can. Well, we can. My video froze up, I believe. Uh, yeah, there it did. you go. Okay, well, I can. Uh, I'll restart my video while we're talking. 
anyway, uh, we'll we'll let you <laughs> we'll just we'll just go on. I don't want to waste time here. So okay. anyway, um, so I, I guess the first thing I'd like to ask you is the what was your first experience with seeing the uh, the Dirty Dozen, uh, as it were, and uh, what age <clears throat> were you? And uh, obviously, it made an impression on you, I would think. Yes, it did. Um, I can tell you, I'm obviously older than you are, and I remember seeing it for the first time when back in the day when it was only network television, no cable or streaming or anything like that. And when they would air it, um, they would do it in two parts because it's a long movie and they had commercials. And I have a vivid memory. I don't know how old I was when it first came to television, but I watched it when it first ended and part two was aired the next day. And didn't matter where I was or what I was doing, um, come hell or high water, I was going to watch it every time it aired. I did eventually get to see it in the theaters when I was much older. Out here in uh, Southern California, there used to be, not as many, but there used to be a whole lot of what they call revival theaters. And they would have a monthly schedule. And if I saw one of them was going to be playing a movie I liked, especially The Dirty Dozen, I'd go. And so I got to see it on the big screen. I think it was at the new, it was either the New Beverly or someplace like that anyway. Um, and it's even better on the big screen. It's it's all encompassing. It's great. Well, that was my, my introduction to it. Right. Wow. That's uh, that's great. Now, you grew up in the uh, Southern California area, I take it. Yes, I did. I was I'm, I'm from New York originally. <clears throat> but when I was about eight years old, my parents moved to California. My family moved to California and I pretty much did grow up here. Yeah. Oh, OK. Yeah. Boy, you uh, I always dreamed of it when I was a kid. And it just, uh, you know, if I, I couldn't even get my father to take me out there to visit. But uh, as an adult, <laughs> I've been I've been many times. And uh so and I love it, love it, love it. Every time that I get out there, if the cost of living wasn't quite so high, I probably would move. But that's another story. <laughs> yeah, I will agree with that. The cost of living in the state is through the roof. And I'm not crazy about it, but it's it's just something you accept along with all the good things, which is mainly the weather. <laughs> this is true. I, like I said, I love it. And the food. Oh, my goodness. I love it. Love it. Um, so anyway, uh, yeah, so your first experience seeing the film Network Television, and it is a lengthy film, so I could see why they would have divided that over two nights, because that, that yeah. sounds, that's, that sounds sensible that they would do, what network was that, uh, that I, I, I may have, uh, you may have said it in my, I it was have, CBS. Okay, yeah, that, uh, that CBS sounds about right. Channel 2. Okay, yeah, so. Yeah, I even remember that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's funny. The important stuff sticks in our minds, right? Isn't that funny how that works? So, uh, right. yeah. Well, mm -hmm. well, that's always, I always like to see, or anytime somebody has such a passion for something uh, like the Dirty Dozen that you obviously do, I like to know about the first time that they saw it. And so that's always an, an interesting story. Uh, so I guess uh, you, you wrote the Lee Marvin book. I'm sure that took uh, quite a few years of your life to complete. Uh, it and did. Yeah. Indeed. How many how many years did that take? Just out of curiosity. Well, um, it worked like this. I started working on it in um, I think it was the early 90s, 93, 94. And so it took me about 20 years of research and, and knocking on publishers doors, literally and figuratively, until it finally uh, I finally got a publisher. I had an agent, a, a, a great guy, Mike Hamelberg. Um, I I would call him Saint Mike, the truly people in the world. 
kept plugging away on it for me. And he finally found a small independent publisher named Schaffner Press, run by Tim Schaffner. There actually is a Schaffner. And he, uh, what you call it, he agreed to do it because luckily Tim lives in Tucson. And as I could have it, when I put together the proposal, he, um, he had gone to the video store and he had seen that the video uh, store clerk was running a, you know, a, a special on Lee Marvin movies, several of which Tim hadn't seen. And then because he lives in Tucson, the video store guy said, yeah, Lee Marvin used to come in here all the time because Lee Marvin lived in Tucson. So that helped make up to my head. And as luck would have it, um, it went to number four on the New York Times bestsellers list. Which is, yeah. And it also won several publishing awards, too. So I was uh, very grateful. Real quick story about that, real fast. Sure. Yeah. We tried to get it published um, everywhere. And everybody would always say the same, same thing. Big publishers, small publishers, anybody. They always said... He's been gone too long. Nobody has an interest in him. Um, he, he's, he's largely forgotten. Well, when Tim agreed to publish it, his distributor was a company called IPG. Yeah, IPG was the distributor for uh, Tim Schaffner's books. And they are the distributor for a whole lot of independent publishers. And they met once a year, uh, the publishers meet once a year at a conference. And Tim told me several of the other publishers would come up to him and go, Wow, that Lee Marvin book is great. I wish we'd have published it. And when Tim told me that, I said, well, they had their chance, you know, and and it was great to have a little kind of, I don't want to say revenge, but <laughs> be, all right, I'll say it. To get back at somebody for uh, passing me by. Um, and I was working after the book came out and was as successful as it was. I was working on the possibility of several other projects um, with, with Mike Hamelberg. And unfortunately, Mike, who was up there in years, he passed away. And I mm. lost Mike. And that kind of left me in free fall as far as my career went as a writer. Uh -huh. And then a few years later, um, actually more than a few years, I came across another gentleman by the name of Lee Sobel, who uh, asked me if I needed an agent. He contacted me through uh, social media and I was kind of uh, thrown, you know, taken aback by that because I've never had that happen. Usually you have to, you, the author has to seek out the agent. Um, and when I told him I'm not really familiar with this process, he said, why are, authors, why are authors so cynical? There's nothing wrong with an agent trying to find an author. And I'm okay, maybe so. So then I looked him up, I checked him out. Turns out he was the real deal. He wasn't a, uh, a con man or, or as my people would say, a Ghanaf, you know, he was, he was the real deal. And so consequently, we uh, signed a contract for me as an author and him as an agent. We started uh, knocking around possibilities. And because he knew I wrote about Lee Marvin, he asked me, how would I like to write a book about the making of Point Blank? It was the first thing he said. And I said, I like that movie, but I don't love it. So I'm going to pass on that. And my personal favorite Lee Marvin film has always been The Dirty Dozen. So I asked him, how do you feel about a book on the making of the Dirty Dozen? And he goes, let me think about it. We bandied it about a little bit more. And then he said, put together a proposal and I'll shop it around. Well, I was amazed. We got an offer in like a week or two weeks. And it was a really good offer. So you know, we signed a contract with the company, Kensington uh, Books. The only drag was they gave me a real small window of time to get it done. So I had to literally hit the ground running. But luckily... 
I had some advantages. Many of the people I had interviewed for the Lee Marvin book who are no longer with us, um, I, I had spoken to them about the Dirty Dozen. And I and a good portion of that went in the Lee Marvin book, naturally, but uh, more of it didn't. So I was able to go into my archives and use some of those interviews. Also, I have a friend who is also an author of books about films uh, named Beverly Gray. And she had done a book about the making of The Graduate, which I kind of used as a template because I had never written this kind of thing before. And when I told her what I was writing about, she said, I, she told me, I interviewed the, uh, the author of the novel, The Dirty Dozen, but it never got published. Would you like it? I can give it to you. And I went, oh, Beverly, would I ever? <laughs> so I had that. I, that, was, that was a stroke of good luck. And one of the other things, when I, you know, it took me, like I was going to say, it took me 20 years to get access to people who knew Lee Marvin. But once I had established myself as an author, it became a lot easier to get people because I could send them my, you know, my bio on Amazon, show them what I've done. And then they could say, more than likely say yes. I had very few people not willing to talk to me. The only one was uh, Robert Aldrich's daughter, who is up there in years now. But her husband had just passed away when I contacted her. So she was kind of warning and she said, I'm not doing any interviews. But that aside... I was able to get, uh, I was able to find, you know, the movie was over 60 years old. Not a whole lot of people left. But I was able to interview um, and find a gentleman named Ken Hyman, who was the producer of the film. And it wasn't easy to do because he's long retired, found out he lives in England, and he's off the grid. There's almost no way. I, I dug in and I finally found him. And as I like to ask people, how come there's no famous Jewish lawyers? I mean, <laughs> lawyers. there are. I mean, famous Jewish famous Jewish detectives, because that's what it took. I had to do some digging and some investigative work, and I found him. And I interviewed him at length over the phone. It was, it was a wonderful uh, interview, sharp as a tack. He's in his 90s, but he remembered everything about me. He was on the set every single day. So that was, that was a great – yeah, Ken Hyman was on set every day, and he told me great stories about – Making, making, making the movie. Um, I also was able to interview um, Donald Sutherland. He's still with us. Um, from my Lee Marvin book, I, I had interviewed Clint Walker. And um, who else? Gosh. Some of the people that <clears throat> were in the film, and they were called the bottom six. One of them was a gentleman named Colin Maitland. And he is, he still lives in England. He's a sports reporter for the BBC. And now he's retired, and I, I was able to interview him. Um, the guy who was the armorer for the film, um, whose name escapes me at the moment, but he, excuse me, he agreed to be interviewed. And also many of the family members of the cast that were often on set, like um, Robert Ryan's children. He had three, he has three grown children. I interviewed them all. Uh, um, who else? Clint Walker's daughter agreed to be interviewed. Um, gosh, so many people. And they all, every, even though many of them often said, I don't know if I could, if I, if I have anything to tell you, I, I don't, I don't remember much, but once I got them talking, they remembered a lot, a lot of really great stuff. Oh, and I interviewed uh, the son of the author, E.M. Nathanson, Michael Nathanson, who was also on set and he was there. He was there the day they blew up the chateau. And he also hung out with Lee Marvin a little bit, told me some great stories about that. Um, but my favorite, 
favorite, as one person told me, was really the soul of the book, was a gentleman by the name of Bob Phillips. Now, Bob has since passed away, but when I was working on the Lee Marvin book, he gave me reams and reams of information and anecdotes that are historical and, and some that were rather um, poignant, for lack of a better word. And all of that, everything he told me about the Dirty Dozen went in Killing General, making for uh, an interesting anecdotal-filled uh, anecdote filled, um, book. Wow, that's that's quite a trajectory. That's, uh, yeah. yeah. That's, <laughs> I, wa- I, I wound up getting the whole thing researched and, and written in about nine months, which is like half the time of what it really uh, should take. Yeah, that's amazing. You were able to put it together in that amount of time. That that really is impressive. Mm, yeah, I was yeah. lucky. Well, yeah, there's a you know the book is still a little over two hundred pages, but there's so much information you packed in. Uh, you know, you, you you there's not a lot of fat in there, and I think that's one of the things that is impressive about it. You know, it's kind of like a um, a good meal, but you just get you don't get any excess. You just get what you need. Right. <laughs> and, no uh, filling. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's that's right. I, and so I, that, uh, yeah. I've I've had several people tell me that I have read the book that the only drawback they found was that they wanted they were sorry to see it end. They were enjoying what they what they were reading. And I don't particularly know for a fact if I have a specific quote unquote voice or or writing style, but what you said a moment ago, uh, like what you said about the Lee Marvin book, I just like to just cut to the chase in whatever I'm writing or talking about. Mm-hmm. I don't like writers who overanalyze that take um, that's a waste of um, But anyway, so I like to be very straightforward in my, I think it shows in both Lee Marvin Point Blank and Killing Generals. Yeah, that's uh, that, that's a well, you know, it, it, you, it may, yeah. you may not consider it a style, but it is a style into it in, in its own way. <laughs> yeah, I guess, yeah, I guess that's true. Um, <laughs> and one of the other things, uh, except for except for this particular project, which is a film, as a rule in my writing, I don't like writing about but and, and and how much and stuff like that. I find that boring. Unless it unless it's a factor in what you're writing about, because in the Dirty Dozen I did write about what the original budget was and how it had gone way over budget, way over schedule. I did write about that. Also, how much it made when it was released, because that's an important factor in the story of the Dirty Dozen. But other than that, I don't really care how much somebody made on a given film or project and and who um who who put in money and where and where it came from and how much and all that? If it bores bore the real, I just deal with that. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you on that. I mean, that there? stuff's okay. yeah. I, I I'm still here. Uh, this is uh, <laughs> okay. yeah. I know this. We're having some technical difficulties for anybody listening here. So it would, so uh, we've had to. Uh, uh, we've been interrupted several times, so apologies. I'll just go ahead and get ahead of that and say apologies. But we're 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 continuing on. We're soldiering on. So anyway, um, yes, indeed. Yeah, in the state of uh, in in the spirit of the characters in the film, we're soldiering on. So <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice segue. I like it. <laughs> yeah. So 
Yeah, that uh, that stuff is to me. I'm more interested in the creative process and what led to the finished product. That's you know more than what somebody made and the status of you know that's the stuff. So I'm am I. I. I have a friend who's a writer. Um, another friend who's a writer, a guy named Bill Crone, who did just a definitive book on Alfred Hitchcock. I like the way he describes it, he said, as "I find out how the rabbit got out, and I feel the same way." What was going to some entity's mind to come up with whatever they came up with? Was it thought out? But I'm going to be collaborative because film is collaborative art. Is it is it an accident? Something that happened on set that they wound up keeping in them, or something that got out? That to me is fascinating, and I love those stories. Those are. The yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah, those, those are the stories that uh, make for the best reading and actually the best writing because you're engaged when you're writing that uh, those type of stories, too, when you get that information. So, yeah, this stuff is uh, good on multiple yeah. levels. And, well, I guess that's true. Yeah, very true. Very true. I, I you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not going to say who, but I had a friend who was a writer and there's also, a, you know, a stylistic thing involved in this. Even though you're writing on fiction, you're still a storyteller. And I had a friend who wrote something in which he gave, he was working, he was he had ghostwritten a book about a famous TV star. And there was this um, deep, dark secret this TV star had that um, he put in the beginning of the book. And I told him, don't do that. Build up to it. And then, at that right specific moment, then give the secret away. That's how you <laughs> Engage a reader. Come drool a little, little bit. Want to want to know what? And that for me, that's a stylistic thing. It might this, but not actually getting down to it in writing. And then you reread what you've written. You go, no, that doesn't work there. You should put it in either earlier or my part. Writers and a grill about graphical writing that people's lives um, often go in chapters and there are given themes in different moments in these people's lives. And that taught me how to build on that and how to create, you know, um, an interesting build up to something that's even more important by the time you get to it. I did that with the book I did on uh, Denzel Washington, um, Hillary Swank, Hillary Clinton. Um, oh, gosh, so many people. Um, Will Ferrell, Adam Sandler, and and by the way, the book on Adam Sandler was not one I wanted to do. I was, but I was given a choice: either Adam Sandler, George Bush Jr., or Eminem. So I said, "Well, Adam Sandler." With <laughs> <laughs> those choices, yep, can't blame and you. Luckily for me, when I was working on that one, I I, I begrud, yeah, I, I begrudgingly took the gig. But then I saw a movie he did called uh, Punch Drunk Love. And that did it for me. I was like, God damn, I love this movie. This is great. I can write about it. And just everything he had done to build up to how great two pump was. Yeah, so I told that made it Yeah, I totally agree. A Punch Drunk Love is a great film. You're you're right about that. I, I think that's an under uh um, underappreciated film from Paul Thomas Anderson. And thankfully, I'll say that's getting a 4K yep. release next year. They just announced that. So, hey. Oh, really? Yeah, oh, Ultra cool. HD I didn't gets, know that. 
it's going to be part of the uh, Columbia Classics Volume 4 box set that's coming out in February. So uh, celebrating the 100 wow. years of Columbia Pictures. So, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to that one. So, yeah, that's uh, I don't know if there's any new bonus material there, but I, I would be welcome to it. <laughs> yeah, right. I, I would. You know, if they ask, I'd do it. Heck, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Uh, yep. um, so, so let them know if they ask you, you know, a guy who wrote a book on that. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. anyway, there you um, go. You are really yeah. in the. Yeah, you are really in the loop about this stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm impressed. <laughs> yeah, well, I get I get press releases on uh, stuff that's come down the pike. And uh, so I, I, I'm usually, you know, one of the first to know usually when it when it happens. And so I get excited I, and I'm, you know, I. I, I do these shows, but I'm also a fan too. You know, it's, 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 well, not, you kind of have to be. I mean, yeah, you, you do. don't do it for the money, obviously. No, 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 not in today's climate. And, you know, it's just, there's so much noise out there when it comes to podcasting and things of that nature. You have to, you know, it's like I, I have a, a following. It's a small but devoted following, but they, but they love what I do. I, I was previously on Movie Geeks United, which has been around 17 years. And my partner decided he just didn't want to do it anymore. I think he was burned out. And so I had to start something from scratch. But luckily, a lot of the people who have followed me for, for nearly a decade over there, they, they said, please don't stop. And I said, okay, if you insist. So here I am. So <laughs> <Cool>. <laughs> that's right how on. it, it happened. Right but uh yeah so there there are some um yeah there you know there's a question about the uh, the dirty dozen wall I've got you on here that I am curious about and maybe you know something uh, you can speak to this so I recently watched it and I was uh, looking up um in one of my guidebooks about widescreen cinema and it was listed in there as being filmed in metroscope and yet the blu-ray that I have is 1.85 to 1 but then I did started doing some research and it said that there were some 70 millimeter prints that were struck up in wide in a wider format I don't know how much of this is true I didn't even know if you knew anything about it but I was just I well I know a little bit about it what I can tell you is that once the film came out in general release it premiered in New York um and I, in 67 I think it was in August or September Oh, it was that. No, it was earlier than that. It was like July or August, and it it was one of the things that made kids realize, you know, we should make our movies to be released in the summer because that's when people are on vacation. That's when school's out, and, and it, not right away, but it began the so-called blockbuster syndrome um, that really hit it big with Jaws and Star Wars, which mm-hmm. was about 10, 10, 15 years later. But it started with that, and when it came out. The studio executives or whoever the gods may be just take some prints in 70 millimeter and give in theaters. And any place that they did that, pe- people who were uh, like writing reviews about upcoming sh- uh, films into the neighborhood, local papers, they all said it was terrible because the way the print was struck made it everything blurry. So people were complaining. So it, pl- it played in 70 millimeter for a very, very short time. So, and for that reason, I don't, I don't know if they ever, you know, cleaned it up or anything like that, but um, even some reviewers, when the film first came out that saw it in 70 millimeter, had to make a point of saying that, that, that you know, that they would review the film, but also add, you know, the print we saw was in 70 millimeter and it was terrible. So th- that's about all I knew. Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah, the stand it has when it's been released on video over the years, it's in a one point eighty five to one ratio. So I assume that's 
that's what Robert Aldrich intended, I was assuming. And so, uh, but I, I thought, you know, it's it would be sad if if he intended it to be wider than that. But uh, from all accounts, that's what I could. So that kind of clears it up. It sounds like they just blew up his 1.85 to 1 um, uh, master that he had and just blew it up to a wider yeah. format. Yeah. Which is probably why. It... Yeah, yeah, that's probably why some people who saw it said it was blurred. Um also, TCM shows it a lot, and when they do, if I remember correctly, it's it's letterboxed. So you get to see more of everything, especially in the background and on the sides of the film. Well, that's very interesting. Yeah. Wow. Uh, well, I, I keep hoping that it's going to get a 4K release. I'm hoping that because uh, Warner Brothers controls that MGM catalog, and so I'm thinking that right, it could be part of the Warner yeah. Archive collection or... Maybe Warner Brothers proper will put it out there uh, because it's, you know, it's a, it's definitely a title that people would would uh, respond strongly to if it was if it were upgraded to a 4K Ultra HD uh, pressing. So, yeah, I, I, you know, if they do, I, you know, I'd be I'd be honored to do the commentary if they need it. Um, <laughs> well, you're also, the man. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, I believe in January, Tino is releasing um a a four i think it's 4k ultra whatever they call it of uh, paint your wagon and me that's and, right and a guy I, a, a, and a friend of mine see courtney yeah courtney and i did the commentary oh great yeah yeah i got the press release on that i'm supposed to be uh getting one of those so uh hopefully i'll that'll that will be coming forthcoming soon and i'll uh, get to to listen to your commentary on there that would be that would be great yeah, because uh, I, I was, yeah, I was just listening yeah, to it. Yeah, I had a lot of fun. I yeah, it. I bet it was fun. I can imagine that. I was just listening to an interview with the guy from Kino this afternoon, and he said that they had spent so much money restoring it for Blu-ray, they said they were just going to, they originally weren't going to do a 4K, and then they said, well, let's do a 4K because we spent so much money restoring it. It, it needed a lot of work, obviously. And they said, if we're going to put this much money into it, let's just do 4K. So they they uh, decided at the last minute to do it. So thank goodness, uh, you know, that'll be great. So, uh, yeah, well, this has been great uh, chatting right. oh. with you. Yeah, our time's almost up, unfortunately. But, uh, yeah, I just wanted to uh, yeah, chat with you a little that. bit. Yeah, and uh, this has been uh, – I've really enjoyed it and your process of writing the book. We want to urge people to get the book if you're a fan of 60s cinema or Lee Marvin or just action movies in general – uh, you're going to learn a lot about the Dirty Dozen. It's it's all here in the production stories, the casting, the uh, the scripting process. It's it's all very interesting. The legacy, yeah. And I can tell you, it's available on Amazon, BarnesandNoble.com, and any bookstore that sells fine books. And if they don't have it, ask for it. There you go. I would second that emotion. Well, thank you so much for coming on. We've really enjoyed it, and I'm sure my listeners will appreciate uh, what we've chatted about, and uh, especially those who are Dirty Dozen fans. And if they're not, read my book and you will be. <laughs>